0: Our text for this morning, which is probably not the best Mother's Day text, but it's a text I've been wrestling with for a while, or I should say it's been wrestling with me, comes from the first book of Kings, chapter 19. And it's part of the canonical of stories around the prophet Elijah. And Elijah is my favorite Old Testament character. In fact, I named my son Elijah because I love this crazy guy <laughs> whose name means the Lord is God. L, which is a word for God, and Yah. It's a combination. Before I read this, I should probably give you a little context or explanation of why I'm messing with this. As part of my own spiritual practices, Jim told you, I am a hospice chaplain for Providence Hospice. And uh, so... Monday through Friday, I visit. I do home visitations for people that are dying, either in nursing homes or adult foster homes or their own home. I go and visit and, you know, just try and be nice and pray with them and just try and help the whole process as it unfolds along. So to nurture my own spiritual life, this year I've begun a project I've wanted to explore the questions that God asks in the Bible. And there's a number of reasons for this. But I thought, you know, first of all, if all the theologians are right and God knows everything, then for crying out loud, why is God asking questions? You know, and so, and there's any number of questions. There are test questions, leading questions, loaded questions, rhetorical questions. I need more information questions. There's all kinds of questions. But so I'm wondering if God's asking questions, there's got to be a why. Because God obviously knows the answer. But so I'm looking at these questions as a way to probe my own heart. There's a quote I ran across a couple of years ago that I absolutely love. It's by a French... He was actually born in Romania, but lived in France most of his life, and he was a French playwright named Eugene Ionesco. And he wrote, It is not the answer that enlightens, but the question. And what he's saying is, is that when someone asks a question they're really giving you a window into what's important to their heart. For example, if you and I were to bump in at the gas station and I were to ask you, hey, do you know the Yankees score? Well, I'm revealing to you by that question that I care about the New York Yankees. Now that you may or may not like that, but I've revealed to you something that's important. I didn't ask about the Red Sox score. (laughs) Or I didn't ask about the Mariner's score. I asked about the... So when someone asks a question, in a sense, they're showing you what's important to their heart. What's... And, and I figure in my own relationship with God, if something's important to God, I want to learn that because I want to attend to that. I want to give myself to what's important to God. So I figure if God's asking questions... That's a window into what's important to God. And I want to learn about that and allow that to, to probe me or maybe even change the way I look at things to see them in a bigger, broader perspective. But the whole purpose is for me to get to know God better. That's why I'm wrestling with these questions. And there's a number of incredible probative questions in the scriptures that God asks. In Genesis 3, the first question in the Bible, where are you? Now, God didn't know where Adam and Eve were after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're hiding behind fig leaves for crying out That's gotta be the worst hiding place in the world. I mean, if we were playing hide and seek at kids, we'd find two adults hiding behind fig leaves for crying out loud. So obviously God knew where they were, but he asked the question, where are you? And then another one that I find amazing is he asked, who told you you were naked? Who told you you weren't enough? Who told you you weren't good enough or worthy to be loved? Who said that to you? These questions of God. And, And then after Cain kills his brother Abel, Cain, where's your brother? Where is he? Probative. In significant questions and in the text I'm about to read to you there's one of these questions that God asks and I think these questions for me have become very important. The deal here is, is I want to get to know God better so that I could love God with more of me and become more of what I believe God dreams or hopes for me to become. So We're gonna come across one of these questions here in a second. So keep an eye out for it. So this is from 1 Kings chapter 19. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched Elijah and said, get up and eat for the journey's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, that's another name for Sinai, Horeb and Sinai were the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came what in the Hebrew is kol dakah, the voice of a thin silence. Called the Mama Daka, the voice of a thin silence. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood near the mouth of the cave. And the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? I think this is a profound question on so many, many levels. And as I've been wrestling with this, or as I say, allowing it to wrestle with me and help liberate me from some of the illusions I have about how important I am to the planet, and if people would only listen to me, things would go so much better. And as I allow it to sort of undo some of that nonsense in my own life, I want to tell you a story where I really started first to think about this question. And it was a little over or about a year ago. I told you I'm a hospice chaplain. So I was in Grants Pass visiting at a skilled nursing facility. Those are places like Hearthstone or Three Fountains, skilled nursing facilities. So I went to visit a patient. I actually, I had gotten a call. The nurse said, you need to get up there right away because our patient Peggy is saying she wants to commit suicide and the people at the facility want you to go there and get this fixed right away because this is a big problem. And so I go up to the facility and now Peggy is someone I had met a couple of weeks before. Peggy was a feisty little spitfire of a woman. Couldn't have been 80 pounds soaking wet. And I remember when I first met her, she was sitting on the bed in her room and she had on a bright purple baseball cap, twisted catawonker, and she had these huge glasses and she was this skinny little thing with all elbows and knees and she looked like Gollum from Lord of the Rings and she was just feisty, feisty, feisty. And she had told me what she really wanted was she just wanted to be able to smoke her cigarettes, but because of all the health regulations in facilities these days, they don't let you smoke anymore. And she just wanted to have her dog. And she knew she was dying. She was on hospice. And all she wanted to do was have her cigarettes and her dog and in a skilled nursing facility with all the rules and regulations, you can't have either one of those things. And it just made her mad as a hornet. And so she knew she was smart enough If I start talking suicide, someone around this joint will start listening to me. And so so this was Peggy. I remember she told me, you know, in a place like this, they break a lot of promises. And they usually end with, I'll be right back. And so this was Peggy. I, I found her actually quite a delightful person to visit with. So anyway, I got this message. you got to go because she's talking suicide. So I go running up to Grants Pass, changed all the things I was supposed to do that afternoon, and I go up to Grants Pass to the skilled nursing home, and I go in, and she's in this activities room, and she's in a wheelchair, and there were a number of folks, ladies, in the facility around a pink tub of fingernail polish and there was one of the folks of the facility there that was painting people's fingernail polish and so these ladies were all trying to figure out which color was the best and of course Peggy picked the brightest pink, neon pink that was in there wanted her toes done as well and so I came in and she saw me and smiled and she wheeled over to this table where we could talk while some other folks were getting their nails done and so we were talking And it was one of those tables, you know, it's just a plastic table. I'm sure you have them here at the church that you set up for potlucks and stuff with the folding legs. It was just a plastic table. And so she wheels over and I sit down and start talking to her. Now, at the other end of this table, there was a woman in another wheelchair who was sobbing silently. But, well, sobbing's not the right word. It was more than crying. It was silent, but it was this deep soul howl that had no sound. And she's in this wheelchair just with this, uh, I mean, oh, my God, it, it was arresting to see this. And she's sitting there by herself just in sort of these undulation of howls coming from deep within with no sound. And so I'm supposed to be talking to Peggy and Peggy quickly told me she wasn't gonna commit suicide. She just wanted the people that ran this joint to take her seriously. She wanted to be able to get out for a cigarette once in a while and she wanted to see her dog and they were doing what they could. And so she piped that down. So I'm captivated by this woman. So I'm trying to talk to Peggy, cause that's my job. And Peggy's telling me about how bad the food is and about all the stories of all the other people waiting to get their fingernails done, but I'm watching this woman down at the end of the table. And finally, one of the workers of the facility came to try to care for this woman, but it wasn't in a, what I thought, a particularly sensitive way. It was almost, it was patronizing the way this man wanted to care for the woman that was doing the silent crying. First, he brought a calendar, and he said, now, now, it's going to be all right because in a couple of weeks we're going to get down to the Children's Museum in Ashland and I've circled the date on the calendar and here's a pen, you can X the days off until we're going to get there to go on this outing. And I'm thinking, yeah, like prisoners in a cell waiting to either die or get released, Xing the days off. I mean, what? And that didn't work. I mean, so she's sitting there and it looked like this woman in this chair had been in the wheelchair for many, many years. You know, her body had sort of shaped to the chair, and and she was large, and, and it looked like she had some sort of mental disorder of some kind or learning disability, I don't know, but no sound. And then the guy went away, and he came back with a box of Christmas cards. Now, this was in the middle of July, and he's got these Christmas cards, and he says, here, I need you to help me. Would you take the cards and stuff them in the envelopes? Now, they're not... Sun- and I figure he's just trying to give her busy work to get her off of whatever this deep soul pain is. And it was like I was trying to talk to Peggy, but I'm watching this unfold, and inside me I felt so inept because this woman was not our patient. And so... I wasn't supposed to visit her, and I didn't know her story. I didn't even know what the pain was, and could I help in any way. She didn't know me, and I felt so inept. And so, what am I supposed to do here, God? This is unbelievable. It just got too much. I mean, her howling, the silent howl, was like a black hole of grief that was sucking me in. And I'm trying to talk... And I said, Peggy, look, I'll come see you next week. I got to go. And I just ran out of the facility and I went out and sat in my car. And I just got in my car and I closed the doors and I just started to cry because I felt so inept, so useless, so, and I had no idea what was going on with this lady. But then it hit me about my own life. At that point, a little over a year ago, I was for about a year and a half in the midst of a lot of shame and feeling inferior and guilt. And the details aren't important. I'm sure you have felt ashamed and guilty and not on your best game and wondering what the heck are we doing here and feeling that you weren't worthy to be loved. That's how I felt. And I had been hiding in my work, just cocooning myself from my own failure for well over a year. And I'm sitting there in my car crying, thinking of this dear woman, thinking of my own pain, and then I think of Elijah, the prophet, hiding in the cave for fear. He felt like a failure. He was afraid. He didn't felt he was up to it. And the word of the Lord came to him and asked him the question, what are you doing here? And I felt the word of the Lord come to me in my car that day in that parking lot in Grants Pass. What are you doing here? What are you doing? That voice of thin silence that I had witnessed from that dear woman at the table. The voice of thin silence. What are you doing here? And I started to think about that woman. Had that woman ever been loved? Had any man ever cherished her and wanted to hold her and kiss her? Had anyone ever told her she was special? Had anybody ever said, oh, what a good job you did? Had she ever had any of those experiences? And I knew now the possibilities of that, given her physical condition, were slim to none. And I thought about my life. And I thought, I still have mobility. I still have mental acuity. I still have some limited freedom that I can go and live my life. I'm not a prisoner to a chair in a skilled nursing facility. I still have time to live, to live. And why am I hiding? And so that thinking of the prophet Elijah and that woman in my own life pushed me to make some changes, to open my life up, to love others again and to receive love again and to try and to engage life while I can because the truth is we're all on borrowed time. And so my question for all of us this morning is what are you doing here? Are you living while we still can? Are we engaged with our family, with our friends, with the projects that give interest to us? Are we connecting with other human? What are we doing to help others thrive in a better way than they are now? What are we doing here? What are you doing here? I think this is an incredibly probative question. And the other verse that came to my mind, which is another one of my favorites, it just shows you how twisted I am. James 4.14 in the New Testament. A lot of people read this and think it's depressing. I think it's incredibly liberating. But James 4.14, I bet you've never heard a sermon on this verse. James 4.14. Whereas you do not know about tomorrow, what is your life? You are a mist, a vapor that appears for a short time and then disappears. Now, I've shared that with some folks and they go, oh, that's so depressing. And for me, it's liberating because what it says to me is, look, in 50 years, nobody will even know I ever lived. So why do I take myself so stinking seriously? Why do I think... I'm so important. I'm a mist, a vapor. So I want to go live while I can. I want to engage with other souls while I can. I want to be a blessing while I can because it's limited for all of us. And so I will ask you the question that God asks the prophet Elijah as Elijah is hiding in the cave. What are you doing here? And my encouragement is to go live as large, as vibrant, as rich, as courageous a life as you can. So that that day when we stand before him, we will hear, well done. Oh, you did good. Come into the happiness that our God has prepared for you. Amen? Amen. All right, let me say a prayer and then we're going to have another song. We're going to sing hymn 499. So in the hymnal, you can be digging for 499 while I say a prayer. And then we'll sing together, He leadeth me. Dear loving God, I'm really grateful that you just don't leave us where we are, even when we're afraid, even when we feel like we're not up to snuff. You won't leave us alone. I'm glad for that. And I pray that you would liberate us more and more every day to engage this incredible gift of life that you have given to each of us, that we would savor it, that we would relish it, that we would not allow the, the nagging voices of fear that say we are not worthy to be loved, that we are not good enough, that we're not pretty enough, that we're not smart enough, that we're, not, that we're too fat or too thin, that we would not allow those voices to snuff out the vibrancy of life you've deposited in us, but that, God, we would live as a great testimony of your power, of your liberating love and grace, and that we would do this for your praise and for our benefit and for the glory of the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.